and ask you, what did you have for breakfast today? I haven't had breakfast yet today, but I'm going <laughs> to have a cup of Milo once this is over. Okay. Is that the standard breakfast for you? Yeah. I don't really drink coffee, so it's my weak alternative. Welcome to the Uncommon Podcast. My name is Jordan Michaelides and I'm your host, while my partner and co-founder Lauren Lepatko is the producer. The podcast is designed to build your knowledge, skills, and mindset, making you a better person in the process. We interview unique individuals in a one-on-one conversational style with guests including VC and hedge fund managers, psychedelic researchers, bodybuilders, scientists, comedians, entrepreneurs, and much more. You'll note that the format is inspired by the likes of Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, and Oprah Winfrey. If you'd like to learn more about the previous guests, just head to neural.com slash podcast for our index. If you enjoy the episode, I implore you to subscribe. It'll help us find further guests and your fellow-minded listeners find the Uncommon Podcast as well. The second thing and probably the most important thing I'd like you to do is share this episode with someone you know will enjoy it. You can easily share through your podcast app to social media or messaging apps. This will go a long, long way in building our audience, which will help both you and I get more esteemed guests on the show as well. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It's just at Neural, where you'll see upcoming promotions for episode and content we have to offer. In this episode, I have for you Claire Connolly, who is an award-winning freelance journalist founder of Hello Humans, editor-in-chief of Renegade Inc., and soon to be an author as well. To me, Claire underlines the importance of the fourth estate and media and journalism and what their role in society is, and that is to make you think. My recent discussion with Dr. James Martin about crypto markets and drug policy illuminated this more than any other interview with his example being the mainstream media's treatment of drug busts. Now, more often than not, a large-scale drug bust will be broadcast on the news. You have the Australian Federal Police in tactical gear, as if they've just come straight from the bust, and broad assumptions on market value dictated to the interviewing media. And no one questions whether this is the best investment of drug policy dollars or whether it indeed saves any lives of the dependent users. And I think this example underlines the importance of Claire's exacting and critical analysis of the realities of our society. And I think she's an incredible writer with a clear-headedness that allows her to identify her own biases as she works. I have much respect for all that she's achieved and all she will achieve in future. I strongly suggest that if you enjoyed this discussion, you go support her work through Patreon and Hello Humans. In terms of the key discussion points, there's a lot here. It's a very meaty episode. Uh, We spoke about knowledge, wanting to be right, and Claire's Jewish background. We spoke about being a good journalist, objectivity versus opinion, deconstructing popular narratives of history, 
We spoke about politics, the internet, and net neutrality, which is quite timely being what's happened with the FCC in America this last week. We spoke about The Truths of War by Smedley, Smedley Butler and also Sapiens. We spoke about commentary on the world today. What is government for? Key themes like decentralization, centralization, government and business. The ultimate form of government in Claire's mind. Uh, capitalism, inequality, democratic socialism. There's so much there. I could keep going on and on. But I think that this will be a very enjoyable episode for anyone who likes politics, the media, and journalism. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you check out my chat with Tom Ballard, which is episode 36. We spoke about politics and comedy and Edward Burke, um, his episode as well, which was politics and conservatism. So if you want the show notes, just head to our index at neural.com slash podcast, but Without further ado, I thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Claire Connolly. All right, Claire, we are live. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having uh, me. No worries at all. Look, I want to start with, first of all, your childhood. When I went back and looked at a lot of your material, the one thing that stands out to me is how sharp and exacting you can often be with your writing. And I'm just intrigued to know when was sort of the first moment or the earliest memory of wanting to be right for you? Wanting to be right. Gosh, my parents would tell you that I came out of the womb wanting to be right. (laughs) Um, But I guess there were two key moments for me. My parents used to read me the newspaper before I even knew how to read. So I feel like it was culturally really important in my family to – Um, for for my brother and I, it was a way for us to repay our debt to society. My parents were very much of the the mindset that, you know, you live in a house, you have three square meals a day. You know, my brother and I were, were lucky enough both to go to private school. And it was really important to my family that knowledge is invaluable. And while you don't ever have to do anything with that knowledge necessarily, it is your obligation to be informed. Um, This culminated in a really, I guess, profound moment for me when I was about seven years old. Um, This is a really cheesy story, so I'm just going to caveat that at the top. Hey, we like cheesy stories. (laughs) (laughs) I used to play clarinet in my school's concert band Uh. and we had been recruited to go and play at an old age home in the middle of winter on a Saturday. I must have been about seven years old. I was in my pinafore and scratchy tights and I really wasn't happy about it. And the phone rang and my mother picked it up and I could tell that she was really upset and she put the phone down again and said, the concert's been cancelled. She had tears in her eyes and I was really happy because I didn't have to play at the concert band on the weekend and I probably expressed my jubilation at no longer having to go out and do that. And my mother just looked at me with this really, really disappointed look on her face and she explained to me that Yitzhak Rabin, who was then the Prime Minister of Israel, had been assassinated. Right. And it was a national day of mourning in Israel and, and it was a global day of mourning, I guess, across the world. And my punishment, if you could call it that, was to sit me down and make me watch about 
a full day's coverage of, of assassination coverage on the news. And she explained to me about the Middle East conflict and the significance of this particular event and why I was deeply ungrateful for, for celebrating the fact that I no longer had to play the clarinet at the concert band on my weekends. Right. And for me, I think that moment really stuck with me about the obligation to be informed. Yeah. Um, and that for me, I guess, was probably the day that I became a journalist or decided to become a journalist. And whenever I'm feeling tired or exhausted or stressed, I guess I just think back to that moment um, and about, it's about, I guess, having humility and, and being grateful for what we have and, and using the capacity that we have to inform ourselves. Yeah. Um, for me, it was never necessarily about being right or even about informing other people. It was mainly just about acquiring knowledge. And why do you think that story was so important to your mother? Like, why, why did she single out that story, do you think? Um, gosh, this is like a therapy. <laughs> um, Look, I was raised Jewish. Um, I come from a mixed race background. My father is Catholic and my mother is Jewish and I went to an Orthodox Jewish high school. Um, and for many in the Jewish community, the status of Israel is really, really important. Mm. Um, I'm not making <laughs> any comments on that either way. I'm a bit agnostic. Um, but that moment in time Yitzhak Rabin's assassination really spelled the end of what was a quite secular, um, progressive, um, democratic, socialist state of Israel. Right. Um, there's actually a really great episode, and I think it's on This American Life. Okay. Um, it's by Hannah Joffe Walt, and it goes back and – does a retrospective on the day of the assassination and it explores a lot of the the conspiracy theories that have popped up around the assassination namely that um benjamin netanyahu was some way involved in the assassination plot now i can't say one way or the the other whether it's true and it would probably be defamatory <laughs> of me to take a stand one way yeah. or the other um I think it's really interesting about what that day meant for the status of Israel in the global community and what it meant for the people living in Israel and, and in Palestine on that very day. Mm. And I think now more than ever, it's really important for us to understand the changes that have occurred internationally and domestically and what it has meant for the country's relationship with America and with Australia and what really it even means to to be a Jewish state or, or to be a Jew in itself. Um, you know, I don't necessarily have particularly strong views on Israel, but I, that moment for me was pivotal um, in, in understanding how a country can change overnight, yeah. overnight based entirely on the status yeah. of its leader. It's, yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because you'd say that most Jews or uh, Israelis are quite – secular they're they're not very religious they don't you know like p people think most israelis are like very hawkish um warlike people because of the the nature of the world that they've grown up in but i think because i you know i've grow, grown up in an area in 
Melbourne, Victoria, that has a strong Greek and also Jewish community. So I had a lot of friends that I played soccer with um, who were Jewish. So I've been able to see what life has been like for them growing up through through those periods. And I mean, most Jews don't seem to be, uh, I mean, like, like I was saying before, they don't seem to be full on about all of this sort of stuff. But it's it's interesting how that has changed the environment in Israel, that they talk about going back home and there's always this sense of, um, I don't know, angst in the street. Have, have you been to Israel at all? I have not. I have not been to Israel. Um, that's a political decision for me. Um, gosh, no one has ever asked yeah. me about this before, so it's a little sensitive. I just want to caveat, I don't claim to speak yeah. for most Jews any other Jews, um, I, I don't even know if I could say that I have a particular social consensus. Um, I mean, it's fair to say Israel, though it is a small country, has a very vast and diverse attitudes to its yeah. own existence. You know, you could go to Tel Aviv on Yom Kippur and you'll find people on the beach. In Jerusalem, you know, that, that basically wouldn't happen on, on one of the holiest days of the year. Um, there are rabbis that question the importance of Zion. And, um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the existence of Israel is yeah. a very sensitive topic within the Jewish community and one that I yeah. choose to stay away from. Um, I don't really I, it, it was a it was a formative moment for me in the in my career progression but I I try to avoid getting into any conversations either about my religion or or the state of Israel or Palestine because for obvious reasons yeah, it's very very contentious can obviously bring um, that up and I don't want them to draw any conclusions from what I'm saying today. So I guess I just, <laughs> just want to caveat yeah. that right up top. Um, Do you think that's an important yeah. thing for a journalist uh, when it comes to, um, I guess, someone knowing about their background and any sort of information that could be distorted? Because I find that, you know, like a great example is if you go read in, if you go read the Herald Sun and, um, uh, I fo- always forget this this lady's name, Indian lady, writes in the Herald Sun. She's uh, very much a right-wing conservative. Uh, but y- y- you get what I mean, right? Like, do you feel that it's important for a journalist to sort of hold back as much much information about themselves personally before, um, you know, they go and write because then people can make certain assumptions about them? I'm quite conflicted on that question because on the one hand, I'm really hung up on not making myself the story. It has been sort of beaten into me to remain divorced and objective from the things that I am reporting on. But on the other hand, I think from an audience perspective, it can be important to understand where a particular writer or reporter is coming from. But it, again, it depends on the topic, the level of seriousness, the level of credence you give that person. Um, you know, for me, I'm quite scathing of Israel's military and political policies. Um, and because I don't have a Jewish sounding surname, people, I guess, might be quite surprised to find that I'm Jewish and mm. critical of the state of Israel. Um, so, you know, 
I think in this particular scenario, it's probably important for me to disclose my upbringing and my background, um, if for no other reason than to allow my readers to, to make up their own minds about where I am coming from. Um, it's very hard to say that any journalist is capable of remaining 100% objective, and in many ways the concept yeah. of objectivity really no longer exists. I think if anything that we're seeing over the political climate over the last 18 months is the return of personal histories and how the histories that we have been taught in school are largely one that come out of the intelligence community and often we are taught very simplistic narratives that suit the political interests of the government and country in which we are raised. And now that we're really starting to understand that um, history is something that runs parallel and that there are people's histories that are often excluded from the official records, those stories are now becoming more a part of the story than the official line that we have all been taught. And I think that that's a really revolutionary moment for most of the developed and the developing world. And <laughs> while the internet can be a, a seething cesspit of hatred and vitriol, I think it's great now that people are starting to, to recognise alternative histories and, and realise that there is a lot that has been excluded from the public record and, and from the dominant narratives. And now, if anything, those personal histories are replacing what used to be a very simple narrative. And I think that is the greatest threat to the status quo and to me a real position of power for anyone that is interested in understanding how the world works is that the status yeah, quo and the dominant really narrative no longer has that, control. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that because so what you're saying is essentially uh, in any sense of the world you would have a dominant power, let's say in this modern age we've got the US, the US essentially since the 1940s, 50s has written the dominant thread of history to say that this is the current narrative of what is happening in the world, this is what happens, this is the, the key things you should focus on, the media disseminates that. But what you're saying is with the, um, I guess, I guess decentralization that the internet has had, you've got all these little different narratives for different types of people or different communities that clash and that it's harder to have one overarching theme. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, we are living through the 30 to 50-year consequence of the lies of history. You know, I'm, I'm working on a book at the moment that deconstructs some of the popular myths that have led to the current crisis. And when you go back and you look at something as, as I say, as simple as, you know, with complete irony, as simple as World War I or World War II, you look at the textbooks and they say, well, World War I started after the assassination of the nephew of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and that was World War I. And then you look at World War II and Hitler was bad and we had to save a population of people from persecution. Um, Hitler was annexing all of Europe and we needed to ensure that that territory could be reclaimed. And really, you know, when you go back and take a closer look, both World War I and World War II were far more a matter of, of economics and controlling Germany's economic power than it ever was about protecting or building democracy. And I think once we understand that, and understand that now we are living through the 30 to 50 year consequence of the end of colonialism and the end of imperialism, 
and how basically the Western alliance's control over the developed and developing world is coming unstuck. And we're starting to see the proverbial chickens come home to roost. And we are living through one of the most um, politically tense moments in history, probably since the end of Vietnam or certainly, you know, the end of World War II and sort of the way that we understand the makeup Mm. of global power is in significant flux. And part of that tension is who controls the message and who controls the narrative. Now, while I am fairly disappointed in the democratizing aspect of the internet, I'm deeply relieved that the dominant narrative no longer has control. And and because of social platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, people now have more access to interpersonal histories and have a better opportunity to understand how the world really works and doesn't work than at any other time in history. Now that is seriously under threat because we have companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter who are voluntarily censoring information from their services and from the internet at large on behalf of the nation state, namely on behalf of the American government, but also on behalf of the Australian government, on behalf of the UK. And if these companies are to succeed, Mm. our access to that kind of information might soon be limited. And I think it's really important for people to understand that net neutrality is not simply about having access to Netflix or not having to pay to use Google or any other search engine just because of the telecommunications provider that you're using. This is about who controls the flow of information and this is about who controls the message. Now, Google has, we already have evidence of the fact that Google is emitting from its search records anything that conflicts with the editorial strategy of companies like the Washington Post and the New York Times, um, organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center, like Amnesty International, um, my own um, employer, Renegade Inc., Counterpunch. Um, they have all had their right. uh, search listings either demoted or completely removed based on what particular keywords that you're searching for. And as a result, the traffic to these websites has taken a significant dip. Um, Facebook has also now agreed to set up a tool to allow people to understand what sites they have accessed might have actually been Russian propaganda. They haven't explained to anyone what identification methods they are using to decide what is and isn't Russian propaganda. They haven't offered to create a tool to identify American propaganda or Australian propaganda. Um, I mean, Twitter, you know, up until recently was majority owned by one of the the princes of Saudi Arabia. Nobody's offering to create a filter to, to understand the ownership of Twitter through that particular corner of the world. Um, so, you know, and when we go and look at some of um, the criticisms, you know, one of the biggest um, rumours that seems to mm. refuse to go away is the idea that Russia hacked the election. Now, we we have no evidence that this is the case. 
you know, what we have evidence of is large-scale lobbying influence from inside and outside of the United States, from Russia, yes, but also from countries like Greece, like the UK, Saudi Arabia, Iran. Um, but but none of that seems to be anywhere near as important as, as the Russia word. And um, the FBI and the CIA and the NSA um, have all said that when they're looking at these so-called Russian troll sites that are supposedly creating anti-election propaganda, mm-hmm. the only identifier they are using is that it's come out of Russia. So you just simply have to be Russian. You don't have to be connected to the Kremlin. All you have to have <laughs> is an IP address that when pinged locates itself within the country of Russia. Now, we've had intelligence veterans, you know, seven or eight, of them that have worked in the intelligence communities for 30 or 40 years come out on the record and say the information that that we have that leaked was doctored after being leaked by the DNC to look as though it came out of Russia, but we have no evidence that this is the case. Now, as anyone who uses a VPN knows, it's very simple to mask your location when you're using the internet. So the idea that there's this you know, Kremlin-controlled operation to, to secretly install Donald Trump, we, we simply have no evidence of that. But the idea that you're a Russian stooge or that, you know, you're somehow working for Vladimir Putin is the easiest comeback mm. in political history. But it's based in, on zero evidence. So I, I think it's just really important for people to understand that what they're being told is only a part of the story. And if you're expecting any news organization or any one person to give you a holistic picture, that is an exercise in futility. If people are interested in understanding how the world does and doesn't work, unfortunately, it still will require some effort on their behalf. Um, but thankfully, forums like Twitter, which in my opinion is far more democratic than um, most of the other social media websites, people have fairly easy access to be able to question what it is that they're reading, what it is that they're listening to, and what it is that they're watching. Yeah. Yeah, man, you, you t- touched on a lot of different topics there, and, <laughs> and I want to ap- unpack a few of them. Um, going back to your original point, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but you were talking about um, how World War one and two originated. I've heard often people say that actually it was Napoleon who started this whole thread because without Napoleon, you wouldn't have had the greater state of Germany and therefore um, the whole complexities that arose from, oh, well, that led up to World War One and Two. Um, but but going to that, I think you're right. Definitely, war is just a money making mechanism. I don't know if have you read Homo Sapiens at all. I have not, but there's, there's an excellent text by a form, what okay. used to be America's most highly decorated Marine, General Smedley Butler. He was recruited um, during World War II. It might have even yeah. been before America entered the war. You'll have to forgive me. I forget the chronology. But he was recruited by some of America's leading aristocrats to exercise what was essentially a fascist coup. Um, against Roosevelt as punishment for the New Deal because the New Deal caused the growth of the middle class and this flew in the face of the elite and the establishment and, in their opinion, posed a threat to their ability to hang on to their wealth. Now, they recruited what they thought would be 
the leading Marine in American huh. intelligence community at the time. And what ended up happening is he blew the whistle on the whole operation and it ended up in a congressional investigation. He went on to write a book called War is a Racket, where he described his military history as having set up cartels on behalf of banking industries, on behalf of the wheat industry, the corn industry, um, later on um, the more industrial and, and, and manufacturing industries all over the world, China, Cambodia, um, all throughout the Middle East. It's a really short read, but but if you really want to have a handle on a, a more honest version of America's economic military history, War is a Racket is an absolute must read. Yeah, and, and this sort of coincides with what is spoken about in the book Homo Sapiens in that human progress um, in the scientific realm has been, well, initially it was mapped with uh, what was happening in religion, but now it's essentially mapped with uh, capitalism and from that sprung uh, the, what would you call it, the, uh, the industrial complex that arises from war, essentially, and how really in the West we haven't been able to, to move away from it because it creates so much money and wealth for people. And then that obviously goes into your theme of power. It obviously um, focuses on media as well and how that can be used to disseminate that power. Obviously, we were speaking about, or you mentioned net neutrality and the importance of the internet. I'm interested to know what are the major changes that you are seeing happening right now because you spoke about we're going through probably the largest change in the last 80 months that we've ever seen what are the changes in balances of power where is the power going is it moving away from the u.s is it merely just changing in certain industries in the u.s how is it changing i think it's too soon to say um anything concrete but i will say this the last presidential election signified certainly to me but I would argue to, to most of the world that America's middle class and by extension the middle class throughout the developed and developing world mm. are starting to feel the wholesale consequences of globalization. What we have seen over the last 30 years is governments abdicating their responsibilities over their own populations. Once upon a time, the role of a government was to plan an economy so that it most benefited the people that worked and lived within it. But thanks to free trade deals and globalization, the role of the nation state has deliberately been limited and deconstructed and restrained over the last 30 years on the proviso that the market can provide much better opportunities for people than governments can. It's fair to say that most developed economies have discriminated against significant portions of the population forever. By this I'm talking about women, immigrants, African Americans, the LGBTIQ community, um, sort of anyone that doesn't really fit into what was largely, and I have to say it, white middle class or upper class elite. Now, over the last 30 years, 
the white middle class has now joined the rest of us in this economic dispossession as a result of globalization. And now another portion of the population is starting to feel the pinch that many of us have already been familiar with for a very, very long time. And rather than recognizing that we are all being screwed by this system and have been abandoned by our governments, Mm. what seems to have happened is we have split into cultural enclaves that have launched sort of proverbial culture wars against each other. White supremacists will argue that it's immigrants and blacks and Jews Left will I, the, the people of, of the left will argue that it's the white male elite that are keeping the rest of us down. And I think the thing that seems to be missed throughout all of this is that while we're fighting with each other, the system is going on as normal. Now, Thank in you. a way, Thank I'm quite pleased that. that Hillary didn't win the presidential election because to me, Hillary would have been an extension of the status quo. And and I think it's fair to say Barack Obama, while a statesman and an incredibly important cultural signifier for America, was a pretty significant disappointment. And at the end of the day, he ended up bailing out the banks, um, particularly in the African-American community. Economic conditions for the African-American community actually declined under his leadership and I don't think the change that he was offering in 2008 ever came to fruition if anything we had um, a further embedding of the status Mm. quo and Obama did not provide the hope and change that he was promising when he first ran and that has caused a huge amount of disenfranchisement across the political spectrum I think the left are as disappointed as the right Now, you have a Democratic Party that is completely hamstrung by um, the campaign funding structure of the American political system. Um, It, as we all know, basically locked Bernie Sanders, who was their only hope of a Democratic victory, out of the Democratic primaries. It We had the Clintons controlling the purse strings of the Democratic National Committee. They took money out of house races for up and down tickets um, and the polling was out and she really basically never really stood much of a chance. And while Donald Trump came in on a wave of populism promising to drain the swamp, what ended up happening is he employed six Goldman Sachs employees into his cabinet and the rest are made up of former intelligence veterans, army generals, real status quo kind of people are now surrounding him. And the situation is far worse than it has ever been. Um, Some people might argue we're witnessing the death of the nation state. Mm. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the nation state has been dead for some time. We just haven't really noticed. Now, we're kind of living through a big cultural question, which is what is government for? Some people who sit right of centre argue that the government's role is to get out of the way of the market. I think it's important to understand that when we say the word deregulation, it's an oxymoron. Every time we clear way for the private sector, it actually increases the size of the political bureaucracy. Laws need to be changed. Reforms need to be had. It's just happening in a different way part of the economy 
And we call it deregulation, and that's an incredibly um, clever linguistic tool to make it sound as though red tape is being cut. But actually, there's more red tape than has ever existed in the first place, but it's happening by um, destroying the control of the judiciary, minimising the role that the government can play. Some might argue that a more honest form of democracy is to get rid of governments altogether and why don't we just elect the CEOs of Goldman Sachs and HSBC and all of the major banking institutions because really they are the ones that have more control over the economy than than any particular government. I mean, even when you go back and look at people like Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, um, Biz Stone, you know, the co-founders of these social platforms, let alone, you know, Goldman Sachs and the IMF, the World Bank, the EU, the huge amounts of industries of diplomats and consultants that surround them that have far more control and far less oversight Mm. than most prime ministers and presidents, you know, you really start to understand where the balance of power is actually sitting. So now we have a question to ask of ourselves. Do we repair government or do we give up on government altogether? I'm of the opinion that government has never been more important, and I think there is a reason why Jeremy Corbyn has been so successful in the UK, because what he's posing is a super radical idea that the economy should benefit the people that work within it. I know, super radical, right? Um, He's been far more successful politically than even Bernie Sanders has been, and him and his um, de facto Mm -hmm. cabinet are basically gearing up to lead because they know that Labour is likely to win at the next election in the UK. America has four more years at least, or three and a half, to decide what it wants its its next government to look yeah. like. Um, I think for us here in Australia, Australia has always been an experiment in democratic socialism. And I think what we saw at the last election is that that is still very much a part of the Australian identity, even though even for those who sit you know on the conservative side of the political spectrum they still want their medicare you know they still want public education these are all hallmarks of a democratic socialist state not a capitalist democratic state um and i think that the medicare campaign was one of the most effective um Uh, weapons in Mm. Labour's political arsenal at the last election. And I think we as a country have to decide what it is our leaders are for. And I think, you know, I think it's fair to say between the postal plebiscite and the disastrous election result for the Libs at the last election, you know, I think Australia is pretty dissatisfied with how um, the government has been run and privatised and, and I'm reassured that part of the Australian spirit is that we are a country of a fair go and that our economy should be structured to provide the greatest opportunity to the greatest amount of people with the least amount of sacrifice. Yeah. I, I want uh, There's a few thing, things that you touched on there that I want to just jump back on. Um, obviously, with Obama, that, that to me was a real pity. I think he just became a symbol for... Um, like you said, a representation for the African-American community and what it could achieve by having someone in the White House. I think that his Middle Eastern policy was horrendous. Like you said, he paid out the banks essentially. Um, he didn't really do much other than there was obviously the Obamacare um, system, which looks like it's going to be pulled apart. Um, Hillary, 
I think Hillary, I don't know if, if you'd agree on this, but I feel like she just, as you said, re- sort of represented uh, – she was – to me, she sort of seemed dangerous and almost would just grab onto any political theme that was in the ether to just further her position. I think people got that. They could see through that charade and I think it was particularly apparent when she had that whole deplorables uh, speech essentially. So I think that was interesting. I think she really just laid out the red carpet for um, Trump, which was quite sad. But I think going back to your original point, it seems that inequality is an overarching theme politically through, um, as you said, the free trade agreements affecting everyone socially. Uh, You've got the tech companies that are gaining more power, but yet they're not really based in a a certain country because all their their tax distribution is laid out in a way that it sort of almost seems that they're not part of the country, they're not paying their way. Um, It seems that all of these themes that you touched on relate to decentralization and you spoke about before the the whole nation state do you think i guess more power is being ceded to city states and we're seeing this massive decentralization of the world through media and the internet and now with i guess cryptocurrencies and blockchains potentially the financial system You know, I think we're seeing two very contradictory things. I think what we call decentralization is actually centralization. When you look at things like, yes, okay, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, you know, KPMGs, you know, some of the richest companies in the world, many of them are not paying the tax that they ought to be paying. And um, the big four accountancy firms have allowed them to hide their wealth in offshore Funds like the Isle of Man, for example, um, and they've helped write the regulation that has allowed that wholesale theft of funds out of the economy. But on the other hand, they are working on behalf of governments to control the flow of information and to control the flow of money. So it's almost arguable that, you know, centralization and decentralization are in flux and are in conflict with one another. Um, does that answer your question? I think there were two parts to your question and I might have only answered the first part of it. Well, it sort of does. I mean, I, I, I agree with your point that these companies aren't paying the tax they should, but I think that is mainly because it's not being enforced by the nations that are looking over them, essentially. I, I, I mean, you could argue that they have a moral obligation, but I mean, companies have no morality. They've shown that over millennia or since they've ever existed that they're always going to maximize money essentially that's that's their um i guess charter to me this is much more about the role of money and how it does and doesn't work and and um the the book that i'm working on at the moment actually this is sort of the crux of the argument money doesn't work the way that we think that it does in fact our taxes don't even pay for anything and I think if people understood that the only thing that distinguishes a business from a government is the ability to issue currency, that really changes our entire understanding of how the economy actually works. If you issue Australia and the US and the UK are what we call 
monetary sovereigns. And that's a very fancy word for saying they have their own currency. And taxes do not need to be collected before they are spent. If I need to go and build a school, I'm not going to say, oh, well, I'm going to have to go down and collect $5.40 from every person in the country to pay for this before construction can begin. What happens is the government goes to the treasury and says, hey, we want to authorize $3.5 billion to build a new road or a new school or a new hospital. Please authorize that spending. The treasury goes to the central bank and says, please issue X amount of bonds. Those bonds are then unsold either to, to people in the private sector or to any person who wants to buy it. And it is that which funds whatever project that you want to provide for the country. Are some of those revenues collected back in taxes? Yes, but that is to deal with inflation. It's not to pay for the thing outright. If we had to wait for every person to have enough money to collect enough taxes to pay for the very basics like water and um, electricity, we'd be absolutely nowhere because, as we know, wages have been declining for the past 15 years the thing that keeps the lights on is the government's ability to spend. Now, we don't ever really seem to ask where is the money coming from when we're investing in naval fleets or, you know, new missile launch defenders or missile launch programs or a new military arsenal. Um, Australia and the US and the UK, for that matter, all have job guarantee programs. As long as you serve in the military, the government will pay for your education. And nobody says, gee, that's too expensive. Mm. The government has all of the money in the world. So long as inflation isn't a problem, it can pay for everything that it wants and then some. But we only seem to be happy with spending when it happens in a particular capacity. And it is this um, obsession with deficits and balanced budgets that was popularized by people like Bill Clinton and Blair has led to the greatest economic dispossession in living history. But even those people who were disenfranchised by government seem to have a hard time arguing that the government should spend more money to improve the financial circumstances of those who elected it. And I don't really know why this is such an ideological problem. Either a government exists to plan and, and control the mm -hmm. economy for the people that work and live within it and on behalf of the people that elect the government, or we should just dismantle governments altogether and really let the private sector go nuts. Because otherwise, what is the private sector doing except being a conduit for the big financial firms, for the banks, for the accounting firms, which basically don't regulate them anymore? I mean, that's the other issue that we need to understand the role of accounting has changed, particularly since the global financial crisis, but certainly in basically in the lead up to it, you know, from the end of the Enron crisis through to the present, accountants have been allowed to act both as consultant and auditor to some of the biggest companies, conglomerates, multinationals in the world. And when 60% of your revenue comes from consulting and only 40% of your revenue comes from doing a responsible audit, what likelihood is there that they're going to go to the company who pays them and say, hey, that thing that you're doing is illegal? Or why do the books look the way that they do? They 
now have not just incentive but the regulation that allows them to control and deceive the public by omitting information from their balance sheets. Mm. Wouldn't you say, though, your because thi- you mentioned there that your thesis is reliant upon the fact that governments are just there to issue currency. Wouldn't Couldn't you say also that governments are there, and this is going back to your point about either it's a centrally planned uh, country or it's just completely decentralized and the private sector just handles it all. Isn't the government there to enforce as well? Like I'm talking about having an army, protecting, um, I guess, the people, all that sort of stuff. That Shouldn't that not be included as well? Yes, mm. absolutely. What I said before was the difference between a business and the government is the ability to issue currency, but that should absolutely not be where its role begins and ends. Governments have a huge role to play, not just in protecting the country, but in, in protecting the culture. You know, I think if you look at um, a city like Sydney, for example, or, or we can go wider if we look at Australia as a country, I think it's fair to argue that culture has been completely neglected over the last five to ten years. And as a result, the social aspect and the cultural aspect of the country has completely changed. If you go back to the year 2000, Australia was a country that was proud to share itself with the world. It was a country of culture, of music, of sport, of beaches, a country where people would flock to because we had some of the best nightlife in the country. We had some of the best Indigenous histories and sites to share with the world. We had some of the you know, we were one of the leading tourist locations in the world because of what this country had to offer. Because we have such vast um, differences between our flora and fauna, our capital cities, even our political capital, it seems as though, particularly in Sydney, that culture has been almost completely replaced with property development. Bars have closed. Even places like the Opera House have had severe restrictions put on it in Mm. regards to what it is allowed to do in terms of its outdoor theatre venue because it's had noise complaints from the neighbours who move next door in the apartment building, which we know as the toaster. Now, I would argue if you're moving next door to the Opera House, you have no right to complain about the sounds of the opera wafting into your apartment. If anything, that is something that you should welcome. But it, it seems as though... Capitalism has completely replaced what used to be the Aussie spirit. And I think it's really important, and and going back to what we were talking about with regards to Obama, was he a disappointment as a president? Yes, but culturally, Obama's election was an incredibly important cultural signifier for America. It showed more than 50% of the population that there is a future for a race of people that have been historically and systemically disenfranchised and alienated from their ability to access the opportunities that the economy offers. The role of the government is important in ensuring that this doesn't happen. The government should not be the gatekeeper of the private sector. It should be an institution that upholds justice, that allows the economy to have the greatest opportunities for the greatest amount of people, as I said before, with the least amount of sacrifice. The idea that the rich have to sacrifice even a dollar for any of this to be achieved is one of the greatest myths of the current climate. Mm. So what I think to, to you then, what would the ultimate form of government look like 
Oh, that's a that's a very good question. I mean, I just think we need to have a return to the democratic social values of the the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, I don't think necessarily that the structure of governments need to change dramatically. I think it's more about the people that occupy those seats. I mean, I think it's fair to say across the board, um, the way that we pre-select candidates needs to change. Um, we certainly are badly in need of fresh blood um, in the public sector and in the government sector. Um, I think it's fair to say that both state and local governments are hamstrung federally um, and, and decisions that are made at a federal level have a huge local impact and there is very little um, grounds for appeal and I think that that inevitably leads to things like um, corruption and in-dealing, which we have seen hugely in, in the state of New South Wales recently. Um, so we need to find ways to ensure that local communities have ways to support themselves. For me, talking about decentralisation, I think it's really important to decentralise Australia's geography. Half of the country migrates to Sydney every single day to earn a living. I mean, it's ridiculous. We, yeah. There should be enough um, opportunity within local towns that you shouldn't have to spend two hours in the car or on a train in order to earn a living. I think it's really important that um, satellite cities and micro cities and self-sufficient communities are made a priority um, because in many ways this can insulate communities from fluctuations in the market and, and from changes on a federal level. But that basically comes down to the ability of the state and local governments to afford to provide for their populations. And when many of that funding comes from the federal government, there's very little that they can do except take what they have and, and run with it. So that's a big question that, that really needs answering. Um, a couple of years ago, um, there was a big debate going on about whether Australia should have a Silicon Valley that's based out of Sydney or whether it should be decentralised across Australia. And Malcolm Turnbull rightly argued that it should be decentralised on the grounds that nobody should be punished for not living in a capital city. And I think his point was sound. Um, I think that kind of thinking needs to be applied in a much more um, wholesale and specific and deliberate capacity to reinvigorate local communities. Um, yeah, that for me is the most important thing. I mean, there are many other things that the government can do, but yeah. that would be a pretty good place to start, I reckon. I think you're t you've touched on uh, a lot of points and it's obviously the key thing to me seems to be this this discussion about inequality. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that capitalism at the moment is in my opinion, one of the greatest systems we've found to allocate resources because that is that is all it's doing. However, it has massive pitfalls and we've seen that particularly in the US with inequality. And I think that capitalists, the people who, you know, anyone who understands compounding and compound interest can understand capitalism. The fact is if you can accrue capital in the best way possible, you don't lose it, you don't give it away through taxation or other forms, you're going to end up with a shit ton of money. And I think that that is getting worse and these people need to realize that the more that you do that, the more disenfranchised, the greatest 
expanse of the population becomes. And you can't have that. You can't have a well-functioning society when more than 50% is extremely pissed off about their situation. I think that goes back to what you were saying. It We need a system that is fairer, essentially. I think we, in some ways, we've got it definitely more here in Australia, but it can be eroded uh, in in many ways that you've discussed as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to understand that there are many different forms of capitalism. But the capitalism we currently have, um, I, I'm going to have to disagree with you, is terrible at distributing resources. Um, but democratic socialism was and is a form of capitalism that, that existed up until yeah. very, very recently. The system wasn't always like this. But the form of capitalism we have now seems almost unconcerned with equal or fair distribution. Um, and I think that, that what, what I would like people to understand is that the system has not always operated this way. Um, capitalism, both the words capitalism and socialism have become dirty words that mm. are used as weapons by warring factions on different sides of the political spectrum. Um, but I think that, you know, it almost ought to be ignored because they're almost one and the same. There are many different forms that capitalism has taken over time and will continue to take, but the kind of capitalism we're living through now is almost neo-feudal um, and, and we're in danger of returning to a system um, of, of basically, you know, landed property owners and the serfs that work beneath them and we'll have a class of people that will never be able to rise above a certain station based entirely on how the economy is organised. Um, what I would like people to understand is that the middle class was created almost by accident and the middle class was the result of a handful of people that were prepared to defy the entire establishment to provide financial security. And I'm basically talking about the New Deal. Um, but the New Deal didn't just create the middle class in America. It, by default, created the middle class throughout the world. And almost from the day that it was created, it has been systematically taken apart and deconstructed bit by bit because the establishment believes it was never meant to be that way in the first place. And the idea that you can create a middle class by accident twice, I think accident is probably the wrong word. It was created very deliberately, but it flew in the face of almost the entire White House, the entire American political and financial establishment because two people, Roosevelt and his treasurer, um, basically defied their own parties because they believed that the only way to save the American economy from a global depression was to create a middle class. But that has been taken apart piece by piece ever since. And if the middle class is to survive, we need another Roosevelt. And, and we're seeing it in, in the Sanders and the Corbynistas, um, but even their own parties despise them. And I think voters really need to, to understand that people like that are fewer and farther between. And I, I just would hope that they realise what is at stake if they keep ceding the power of their vote to the private sector. I think Julian Assange tweeted recently that if voting were effective, it would have been outlawed years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a brilliant so, quote. You know, in America, it's really important 
and in the UK that people vote and are registered to vote. But more than that, I think it's really important for people to understand how money works and to have a relationship with the economy and to pay attention to that Um, because it is really only our threshold for pain that is keeping this system afloat. I mean, from the birth of capitalism was created because the ruling class didn't want the working class to dissent. Sorry, that's my dog barking in the background. Um, they didn't want the working class to, to rise up and overthrow the government. And that is basically how capitalism was birthed to the world. And I think people need to realise that they have more power in their expectations than they're giving themselves yeah. credit for. I, look, I think I am I'm largely on the same page as you. I mean, I to give you context, I come from a family that are immigrants from Greece um, and uh, northern England, so they were poor, uh, eventually rose up to the middle class, had small businesses. So I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think the middle class, um, as you said, it was created by people uh, who would define their party and in a way created one one of the greatest things, I think, for the economy. I think that, um, who was it? George Cullen has a brilliant quote. He's like, uh, the rich run the country, the middle class uh, work for it, and then the lower class scare the shit out of the middle class or something of that ilk, which I find quite funny. But I think the middle class is incredibly important. And it's very interesting you, you spoke about this neo-feudalism. I've never heard that term before, and I want to I wanna go research the crap out of it. But um, I, 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 I definitely agree. I think the middle class is crucial and getting back to that form of government or policy that focuses on that that main group of people is incredibly important and the working class as well i mean my you know, my parents are also both immigrants both small business owners my dad is irish catholic you know he was one of 12 he was from a very working class family and it was only because of the hugely influential and, and generous economic conditions that existed when they both migrated to australia that allowed them to advance into the middle class and to provide an upbringing for myself and my brother that far exceeded the standards of living that they experienced as children mm. um, but my brother and i are of the generation that is was the first to have fewer economic opportunities than the parents that came before them. Yeah. Um, you know, we were basically born into the global financial crisis. <laughs> Not quite. I was born in 85. Yeah. So just before the first stock market crash. And by the time I graduated university, there was a second one. <laughs> so I was screwed from the outset. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, we've given away the keys to industry, to the developing world. Um, and I don't quite think that... At the time that those decisions were made, that developing governments didn't realise the power that they were ceding to the developing world. And I think particularly when you see the skirmishes now that are happening around Russia, India, China, Pakistan um, and the Middle East, it's very much a result of that um, change in industry. Um, I, I don't know if industry will ever return to Australia or to the US, but I think when we're looking at the working class um, self-sufficiency is going to be really, really important. And I don't know if there's another industrial revolution, you know, on, on the horizon, but I certainly think I would be surprised if we don't see some kind of return of industries that allow 
towns and communities to be self-sufficient. Um, because at some point, governments are going to have to step up and provide mm-hmm. for the people that elect them. Um, I think while we are in one of the greatest political clusterfucks in living history, people are starting to see the system for what it is. And I don't think they're going to put up with this shit for much longer, to be honest. Um, and which is why, for me, I'm encouraging everyone that's listening to this and, and hopefully will listen to this in the future to to raise their expectations and to understand that it is completely acceptable to feel out of control, to feel anger, to feel outraged. It's not you that is crazy. There are a lot of people telling trying to convince us that everything is fine. This is fine. There's never been a more exciting time to be Australian. You know, like politicians and 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 certain sectors of the media love to throw out statistics that underplay the vulnerability of the economy. And and I'm here to say unfortunately things are far worse than we probably realize, but the our ability to grapple with reality will be the greatest factor that controls what the next 10 to 15 years look like. Um, so I would encourage people to get upset, to, to feel comfortable being uncomfortable so that we can all start to take various actions to expect more from the people who we elect. I want to jump back to you were speaking before about self-sufficiency. Now, Jeff Bezos has spoken about the fact that journalists need to ask to be paid because obviously people will pay for quality germ, uh, journalism. I know that uh, looking at s- some stats the other day, I think the New York Times is now predominantly paid for by subscribers. So people can correct me if I'm wrong, but I- I'm pretty sure it is over 50% of revenue now. And you created Hello Humans, which is also using a, I guess, subscription-based model. Do you? Why did you go down this route? Do you think that the influence of your parents being small business owners affected you that way? Is that the particular reason? Um, yes and no. I mean, certainly having parents that had small businesses and I guess were quite entrepreneurial in, in their own way. Um, I was raised under the ethos of financial insecurity. I knew from the time that I was four years old that I was going to be a journalist. So the idea of, of security was never something that I, it's completely unfamiliar to me. Um, So the hustle, I guess, has always been in my blood. Um, I started it at about a year and a half ago at a time. So I've been, I've been a journalist for 12 years and I've been a freelancer for about six of those 12 years. Um, And at the time that I started Hello Humans, I was going through a bit of a dry patch and I really needed some money and I had more time on my hands than I probably wanted to have and I wanted to use it productively. Um, and I had been using Patreon to support some podcasts that that I listened to and, and some other writers. And I've been blogging in one form or another since I was about seven or eight years old. Um, so I guess it was more a natural progression to see if I could launch an experiment in monetization um, so that when I had downtime, I had the ability to earn a little bit of extra cash. Um, Fortunately and unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, I was offered the role of a lifetime about six months after I started Hello Humans. Um, I'm now the editor-in-chief of Renegade Inc. Um, So I'm now juggling both of them 
Um, so, you know, over the last year and a half, I've, I've had a, a lot of time to really think about what it means to have readers as stakeholders. And personally, I, I mean, look, VC capital for all media startups is drying up and advertising revenue is on the decline. So all journalists and media outlets, as distinct from one another, are going to have to find new ways to support themselves. And, you know, at at a time when we've never had more propaganda and misinformation, having news that we can rely on is really, really important. And quality journalism costs a lot of money. So I'm a true believer in in having our readers be the primary stakeholders in the content it is that we produce because then you don't have a VC guy saying, hey, we need 25% growth in the next five months or we're going to pull our funding. Or, you know, if we're to go down this road, you inevitably will have to do an IPO at some point for this to pay off for us. You know, I'm of the opinion that VC funding can be death i don't want to say is death because maybe there are models that work um yeah but But for the it's right for the right business not for a media business i I think the thing that seems to have largely been ignored um in the vc space is that media publications are not just another company on a stock exchange and they shouldn't be treated with the same conditions as any other company and you know if you go back God, was it 10 years now that Facebook had its IPO? Was it that long? Part of the reason that Facebook now looks and feels the way that it is is that it was massively overvalued at the time that it had its IPO. So it had to make a bunch of commercial decisions following its launch onto the stock exchange that significantly affected how people used the platform. Now, if Zuckerberg had asked for even half the amount of money from his funders that he he ended up taking, we might, and we will never know the answer to this question, but we might have a more democratic form of social media than the one we have now. Because ultimately, the, the fate of Facebook is no longer in the hands of the CEO, it's in the hands of the stockholders. Um, I want to put the future of journalism in the hands of people that read and care about journalism. <laughs> um, and I want to make it affordable for people to do so. So um, the way that I structured the Hello Humans pricing scheme was I put out a newsletter roughly once a week, sometimes every 10 days, depending on what my deadlines are looking like. Um, And I wanted to price that at less than a $5 note because then I guess people would consider what they're paying for as pocket change. So I I charge $4.50 a month for my newsletter, which goes out once a week. So you're getting around four, four newsletters a month, each which contains an exclusive, sorry, an exclusive piece of journalism, um, and which also gives you an insight into what I'm listening to, watching, reading, thinking about, etc. If people don't want to sign up to the newsletter and they just want to read the exclusive, they can pay a dollar a month and access it on my Patreon. Um, by the way, Patreon.com/slash Claire Connolly. Um, and I occasionally um, put sneak previews and and freebies up on my Medium account Um, and I also have a micro paywall on my website using um, an app called Inkle Pay 
where people can basically pay between 10 and 50 cents per read. Um, so I guess I have sort of three sort of subscriptions, one for people that are on a budget and, and then two that are still sort of reasonably priced. And I guess at some point I will correlate my findings and, and make a decision about which road to go down. Um, but for me right now, it's about providing options for people about how they want to pay without confusing them. <laughs> um, I'm still experimenting with it. I'm still making changes. Um, but uh, it's earning me – I'm not earning a huge amount of money. I, I think I make about $500 a month out of Patreon, but it's significant enough for me now that I have to keep it going, um, which is great because I guess – Part of the motivation at the time when I started it was to give myself the discipline of filing something exclusive at least once a week um, when things were a little quiet. But unfortunately, as any freelancer knows, it's all about damn Benjamins. Um, <laughs> so I was very, very relieved when when Renegading came along. And I mean, to say that this role was made for me is an absolute understatement. I've just completely fallen in love with the job, with my team with the publication it's it's really it's a dream come true um and so I guess I've had no choice and and I, I say this voluntarily you know I've I, I always will have to throw my my energy into um the thing that pays me the most yeah of course, of course. Um, but also because you know I really believe in Renegade Inc and I think it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to um be centrally involved in launching a media publication that flies in the face of everything that we have been taught about how to structure these businesses. And I'm really excited to prove to the world that there is another way to do public interest journalism. Um, and, and I would encourage anyone that's really interested in unpacking, you know, the myths and propaganda of our present age, it, you know, it's really worth buying a subscription it's about $50 a year um it's a one-off payment you log in that's it you know it's super simple um but in supporting Renegade Inc you are allowing us to keep the bastards honest you're paying for our lawyers you're allowing us to conduct really serious investigative journalism and yeah th there's never been a more important time um to to be a, a subscriber in my opinion yeah um, and, and I'm of the belief that free news is fast going to become a pejorative and the best media publications will be the one that has subscribers. Yeah. Because unfortunately, you know, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Exactly. And that significantly affects the content and the way that it's structured and what you're reading and the information that is emitted from that product as well is really important. Hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, I th I th some exciting things on the horizon. I think, yeah, to underscore all that you've said, I think that the media industry made mistakes when the internet came around by just letting social media organizations scrape their wares and also just relying. I mean, the founder of L2 Inc., Scott Galloway, has spoken about the ad apocalypse which is happening um, and how media organizations need to rely on people they need to offer services and in this case subscription i think for true investigative journalism is probably the best option to go towards and like you said if you're um <laughs> you are technically the product if you're being advertised to they are optimizing 
absolutely everything. The way that you view uh, the the writing, the the way that you engage the website, all that sort of stuff. Unless, of course, you've got like a Bloomberg, which in a way they're just optimizing to get you to use their platform. But still, you, in in any sense, if it's free, you're the product, right? Um, absolutely. And I'm intrigued for the listeners who haven't heard about Renegade Inc. How would you? How do you describe it to people when you first start chatting to them? Um, it's a it's an information service that unpacks the myths of the economy, finance, policy, technology, and history, and goes back and examines all of the things that we got wrong that led to the current political crisis. Okay, and and is primarily investigative journalism, isn't it? Um, it's opinion and it's investigative journalism. Um, it's largely has been fo- so. It's a television show. It goes out on RT UK um, every Monday. Our episodes air on our website every Saturday. Um, right. And when they hired me, um, I was hired to oversee a, a global editorial expansion that moved out of the video space and into editorial. Okay. Cool. Well, we'll definitely have links for that. I think people should go check it out. I've obviously been screening through it over the last year or so, so definitely go check that out. Um, uh, I want to jump into some faster questions now, looking at time and uh, knowing that you probably want to jump off and grab a Milo. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) In your opinion, what would you say to a a student who is looking at getting into journalism? What would you tell them about the industry now? Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, I recently hosted a a careers night um, at UNSW, my old alma mater, um, where journalism and media students sort of got to ask me questions about how to make it in this industry. And I was shocked and disappointed to find that almost every student there was not interested in becoming a journalist. They were all uh, sort of doing double degrees in media and communications and, and journalism was sort of just an aspect. Ah, right. Okay, that's um, interesting. You know, these kids are coming for our jobs. You know, these kids were so massively overqualified before they'd even officially entered the workspace. Um, it was terrifying. It made me terrified for my own job. Um, I don't know. Um, People getting into journalism, look, I'm a true believer Um there's nothing else I've ever wanted to do in my life. Um, I guess it depends on what kind of journalist you want to be. Um, if you want to partner with a masthead, then that's one way of doing it. That you know, then basically you'd need to start at an entry level position and hang on for dear life um, through the good and the bad. And that's, you know, that can be a really good way to grow within a media organization. Another way is to go down the independent or freelance route. Um, Freelance rates have dropped across the board. It's really quite terrifying to see how little, um, you know, a particular pace will pay. But, I mean, on the other hand, it does provide you with freedom. I mean, I think across every industry, and this isn't just for people interested in journalism, it's all about the hustle now. There's no such thing as um, a primary paycheck. Everyone I know has side projects. Um, and then we're all just going to have to diversify, work a lot harder, find different ways to earn a living. Um, 
I would say to people to just try and get as many skills as you can possibly get your hands on. Try and work in as many different capacities as you can, whether that's sound and audio engineering, video in front of the camera, behind the camera, editing. I mean, the ability to to craft a sentence is really important. If you can mm. master the reverse pyramid style of journalism, you will never want for work. <laughs> Um, but yeah, anyone studying media right now needs to ask themselves some serious questions because if they're in it for the money, they are in the wrong industry. <laughs> what uh, do you have a morning or evening routine? Oh, good God. Um, <laughs> routine is not one of my strong points. Um, I'm a bit of a, an addict, so there's, there isn't really a time where I'm not working. Um, but on a normal day outside of November 2017, um, I'm up at six. I work through until about three or four in the afternoon, go to the supermarket, get stuff for dinner, prepare and cook dinner, you know, maybe watch a movie with my partner or go out with friends. And then I'm usually back in front of the computer by about 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And then I usually work through until... On a good day, you know, one or two in the morning. On a bad day, three or four in the morning. And then I started all over again the next oh, day. <laughs> God. How many hours do you sleep a night? Um, a standard night is about five hours. Okay. Thank God. I thought for a second you were sleeping like two, three hours a night. Well, some night, I mean, some nights it is two to three. Other nights it's, it's more. I mean, I was up until four last night, so I had a bit of a sleep in this morning, which was... Quite lovely. Um, but, you know, the great thing about journalism is, is if you're against routine, journalism is a really great <laughs> road to go down. Um, I, you know, what I love is that every day is different um, and no two stories, no two days are the same. So that really appeals to my ADHD. <laughs> um, I always have a deadline. I always have something that needs to be done. Um, and it keeps me on my toes, keeps me out of trouble. Well, it keeps me causing the right kind of trouble. Yeah. What's, uh, what's been your best purchase under $200 in the last few years? Oh, um, my headphones. Okay. My, um, what, what are these? My headphones? noise controlling headphones. They're, uh, they're Sony's. Um, I'm looking at them right now. The model is MDR ZX330BT. Okay. I don't know what that means, but they're really <laughs> excellent. They were 150 bucks, and they're on warranty, which is great. So if wow. I ever break, I can just take it down to JB Hi-Fi and have them replaced. And I can't hear anything when I'm using them. So it's really great when uh, both my partner and I are working from home and I need to drown out the background noise. There you go. What, uh, what's been the most influential book on your life? Oh, um, okay. There's a couple of them. Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. Okay. Um, it's an absolute must read for anyone who really wants to understand how the economy works and the role governments have played in guiding um, the private sector and the role the private sector has had, particularly on the Middle East, but also across the world. Um, Steve Keen's Can We Survive Another Global Financial Crisis? Um, gosh, I forget the name of the author, Undercover Economist, um, really important read. Confessions of an Economic Hitman is another one. Uh, oh, 
I, I knew I was forgetting something really important. Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail by Hunter S. Thompson is just about my Bible. <laughs> I, I think I read it at least once a year. Um, and also Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis, um, which is basically a really great graphic novel series based in the future. Um, the character is actually based on Hunter S. Thompson himself and it it was written in the, the late 90s, early 2000s and has done a pretty scarily accurate job of predicting the present political crisis, except there's just more aliens and robots and more genders than you can poke a stick at. <laughs> um, but it's super entertaining and subversive and, and it really appeals to my form of journalism. What... Uh... Which hi- historical figure do you most identify with? Mm. That is a very good question. No one has asked me that before. I'm going to say Roosevelt because he created the New Deal. Um, I really like um, people that stand out for history and that are not afraid to defy their own party. Um, Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister and Australian economist, is another one. Um, adults in the room is absolutely essential reading for understanding Brexit, for understanding the EU, the Greek bailouts, um, and just how disinterested the political establishment and the diplomacy industries that surround them are in preserving either the financial or democratic integrity of the countries they claim to represent. Um, Varoufakis basically went to the wall with his government by defying the terms of the Troika and the EU when it came to the Greek bailouts and in doing so basically lost his job as Greek finance minister. And he wrote a tell-all about what happened during the Greek bailouts, which incidentally was not actually a Greek bailout but was a bailout for the French and German banks under the guise of Greek austerity. And, and, and a bailout for the people and government of Greece who never saw a single dime of the money that they were bailed out with by the EU. Yeah. Um, so go and read Adults in the Room. It's really important. But, yeah, I would say Varoufakis and, and Roosevelt are probably two people that I have huge admiration for. Do you have any favourite podcasts at all that you listen to regularly? Oh, yes, I have many podcasts. Let me Let me take a look at the podcast app and see what I'm listening to. Um, which, which app oh, do you I use, re- by the way? Um, I use Pocket Cast. Okay, there you go. Same. <laughs> so I'm really into true crime. Um, so there's this great podcast called My Favourite Murder, uh, which is hosted by two really amazing women, Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. Um, the Dollop is another one. Um, that's a really great um, if you're into history and, and the stuff that doesn't make it into the history books, the dollop is is a must read, uh, must listen to. Um, Heaven's Gate is a new podcast that has just recently come out about the Heaven's Gate mm-hmm. cult. I don't know if you remember that from the no. late 90s. Um, Harmontown, The West Wing Weekly, The Comedy Store, Somebody Knows Something, Hollywood Babylon, um, and Dirty John is another great um true crime series. So all of those come highly recommended. Um, okay. Last question for you. If you had to start with nothing, uh, you had all the knowledge you had and you were back to where you were, you just finished high school, you're 18, what would you do or what would your next six to 12 months look like? 
Um, I do exactly what I did last time, but I would take my university studies more seriously. Um, I would form partnerships with my professors um, so that I had a little more professional direction at a younger age, basically. Um, I think it probably took me a lot longer to get to where I am now than might necessarily have been the case if I was capable of focus at 18, 19, <laughs> 20. Um, on the other hand, there's something to be said for getting real-world experience before going to yeah. university. Um, so in, in a way, I don't regret anything. On the other hand, I might have had this book finished years ago if I had just had a little bit more focus and direction at a younger age. Well, look, Claire, this has been wonderful to interview you. I know you want to jump off and grab some Milo. So uh, thank you so much. Do you have last requests for the audience and how can they find you on social media? Um, you can find me at Twitter. Um, I'm underscore Claire Connolly. That's Connolly, C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. Um, you can support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Claire Connolly. Um, I'm on Medium. I'm on Facebook. Uh, Claire Connolly Journalist, I think, is my Facebook URL. Um, come and read and s- subscribe and support and listen. And, you know, I hope that the work that I'm producing is of benefit. I, uh, I definitely underscore that. I think people should definitely go have a read and consider subscribing for sure. Uh, Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for making it this far. Before you run off, I've got a quick request for you. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you subscribe. The reason being is it will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find the Uncommon Podcast. The second thing and probably the most important thing I'd like you to do is share the episode with someone who will enjoy it. You can easily share through the podcast app to social media or through messaging apps. This will go a long way in helping us build our audience, which will help both you and I, I guess, get more esteemed guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or Instagram. It's just at Neural. Each week we have promos on the episodes. But until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.